13 of Matthew chapter 5, you'll see it says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything. Jesus told his disciples that they had to be different. They had to be salty. And it was the saltiness of the disciples lay in their righteousness. That's what made them useful in fishing for men, in the proclamation of the coming of the kingdom of heaven. They had to be salty. That is, they had to be distinctive. They had to be observably different. They had to stand out from the crowd. It's like a a city on the hill that is unable to be hidden, seen for miles around, uh, seen both day and night. It can't be hidden. At this stage, I'm going to ask Wendy, who is here somewhere, to get my other glasses, would you? Because I've got reading glasses on at the moment, which means I can look at my text really well, but you're just a blur out there, and I like talking to you. And although you don't know, I'm just seeing you as a blur, but you are very blurry today. And it has, uh, I might as well get the right glasses on so I can see you. Or I can play grandfather and look over the top of the glasses, which is one step worse. Anyway, she will do the right thing for us. The thing that was to mark them out as different was their God-glorifying good works. This quality of life, these good works, that when people saw them, and you can't hide what's genuine, that when people saw them, they would glorify their Father in heaven, verse 16. They wouldn't glorify the disciples, but the Father in heaven. Because people would recognise in these good works that the hand of God was upon them. That these good works were unnatural, these good works were supernatural, divinely inspired and empowered. These were the good works that are actually at the heart of law-keeping. Thank you very much. You couldn't work out which one it was, could you? Okay, there we go. I've just changed reading light. No. Oh, it's nice to see you guys. That's lovely. Good. Even see smiles on the faces. It's that clear. It's just wonderful, isn't it? Now, these good works were at the very heart of law-keeping, for they were not in defiance of the law, nor were they any different to the law, but they were to keep the law as no group of people had ever kept the law before. Not even the famous law keepers called the Pharisees, especially not the Pharisees, for their righteousness was of such nature as that they couldn't even enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were to keep the law in a way that was completely different. They were to keep the law from their heart and thus fulfil the Old Testament expectations of passages like Ezekiel 36. Now Jesus spells out this new heart-shaped law-keeping with six contrasts in chapter 5, verses 21 through to the end of the chapter. Each contrast commencing with, you've heard that it was said of old, and then overruled by, but I say unto you. And each contrast showing the difference between those inside the kingdom and those who can never even enter the kingdom. He's not denying the law or changing the law. He's explaining the law and applying the law. It's the contrast between, I suggested to you last week, minimising and maximising 
the observance of the law. For by minimizing the requirements of the law, the Pharisees had showed themselves to be hypocrites. For although they appear to conform their life to the rulings of the law, they actually conform the law to the way in which they wanted to live. While by maximizing the implications of the law, Jesus calls upon the disciples to show a sincerity of really wanting to live under God's way. And that will be the good works that will bring glory to the Father in heaven. Depending on keeping the law with the sincerity of heart like Jesus is a supernatural transformation of sinful people and is quite different to the hypocritical appearance of keeping the law when in fact you're always looking for the loophole. You're always looking for the way out. You're always looking for the exception. You're always trying to work out how little you can get away with. Jesus then illustrates the principle with these six contrasts. And then he contrasts three principles of righteousness in chapter 6 and then contrasts the principles of priorities in the second half of chapter 6. Indeed, this is the, the kind of central body of what the Sermon on the Mount is about. So far from chapter, one, chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, the principle has been laid out. Now he applies the principle in six areas of law-keeping, on three areas of righteousness, and on the whole issue of priorities, and that's where we're heading over the next few weeks. Today we're looking at the first of the contrasts. In verses 21 to 26 of Matthew 5, where he takes the commandment, you shall not murder. And he calls it, really, living with your brother. Remember he's speaking to a, G a Jewish audience and the use of the word brother would mean any fellow Israelite because all Israelites were brothers. It could, though, of course, also refer to the disciples because they were the brothers. Though the passage is like the parable of the Good Samaritan, we know Jesus was very keen not to limit the brotherhood down. And you see, again, the idea of minimizing everything. You see, if you don't really want to follow Jesus' law, the first thing you'll say is, well, now, who is my brother? They're the only ones. That... Whereas Jesus is saying every man, even the Samaritan, he was the one who acted as brother to the man falling amongst thieves. Maximize the implications. Don't minimize them. And so, at first glance, the, the commandment is simple. You shall not murder. It's drawn directly from the Ten Commandments which should require really no comment. I mean, in the Hebrew, it's just two words, no killing. Now, which part of no don't you understand? It's fairly straightforward, isn't it? Other people's lives are not yours to determine. You're not to kill. The only quibble people could have really, seeing no is completely clear, is what is the definition of murder? When is killing murder. Which killing is murder? Is manslaughter murder? Is euthanasia murder? Is killing animals murder? Is wailing murder? But there's the addition to the commandment Jesus has in verse 21. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Presumably this is referring to the human judgment reflecting the commandment of Genesis 9 verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. 
for God has made man in his image. And setting up courts in every town, as happened in the Promised Land in Deuteronomy in chapter 16, there were courts set up everywhere to apply the law of God. And the law of God really laid out that there is a judgment that comes upon those who commit murder. But what is the problem with this commandment or the addition that Jesus would want to raise higher standards? You see, with Jesus, the contrasts are twofold. At the point of the crime and at the point of the judgment. Now, we're going to have to look at the words fairly carefully here. And so some of them I'm going to put up on the screen, and, but they're, they're the words that are in the passage in front of you. You might see it in the Bible rather than the screen, whichever way you want to look at it. The old teaching was that murder leads to judgment. Now Jesus is contrasting the righteousness of the kingdom with his teaching, both at the point of the crime, murder, and at the point of the judgment. I'll take them in turn. Firstly, notice the contrast of the crimes. Looking at verses 21, verse 22, the crime in verse 21, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But notice how Jesus explains what that means in verse 22. You've heard that it was said you shall not murder, and whoever murders, but I say to you everyone that is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother, whoever says you fool, will be in danger. That is, Jesus spells out the concept of murder way beyond sticking a knife in somebody, way beyond shooting them. He puts it into the very positive side of the relationship that you will have. If you're angry with your brother, if you insult your brother, if you look down upon your brother, you are already doing that against which the commandment you shall not murder was written. Here's the classic contrast between minimising the law and maximising its implications. In our attempt to excuse our behaviour, we want to limit murder to the actual killing and then to reduce even that to premeditated or first-degree murder or not manslaughter. But Jesus wants to see the very commandment is the inbuilt assumption of right relationships with others. Hence, we should not even have murderous thoughts. We should not even be angry with one another. We certainly shouldn't despise them or insult them or consider them as foolish compared to ourselves. Jesus wants us to see that the man who fails to actually kill, but would love to if he was given an opportunity, is guilty of the crime itself. It's the man who loves his neighbour who is fulfilling the commandment, you shall not murder. For I cannot love my neighbour and kill him. But that's only half of the contrast here. For the second and even more striking contrast is the contrast of the judgments. Look at the judgment in verse 21. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But in verse 22, it says... Not only will be liable to judgment, but he goes on to say, but whoever who is, ever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The crime seems to differ, 
murder versus angry with brother, but the judgment is the same because the crime is really the same. And look at verse 22 and see that the crime is the same and yet the judgment differs. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. To insult your brother, Greek here is to call him raka, fool, is really identical to calling you the fool. It's the same crime. There's no contrast in the crime, but there is in the judgment. One sees the judgment in terms of the council, the court, the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, in terms of this lifetime, you'll be taken to the court. But the other sees the judgment in terms of God, the hell of fire, in terms of life and death and judgment after death. Here we see the stark contrast between Jesus' teaching and the world's teaching. The world agrees with the commandment, you shall not murder, and the world is willing to bring murderers to court. But Jesus demands that we must, be, we must not be murderous in our hearts. And he warns us we will be punished beyond the courts, beyond death. With Jesus, the law is internalised and intensified taken beyond the civil courts of this age into the reckoning with God and eternity. With Jesus, murder is not limited to the action of killing and the judgment of the secular court. Murder is understood to be a spiritual, attitudinal issue and the judgment is that of the eternal court. So here is a little commandment, you shall not kill, you shall not murder. It's a simple, straightforward commandment. But the Pharisaic mind of it will cut it down to the barest minimum, whereas the, Jew, the, the Christian mind of it will widen it out and take it into ourselves. My attitude of heart. So Jesus commences verse 23 with the word so. Here's the consequence of his teaching of this understanding spelled out in verses 23 to 26 in terms of two issues, your brother before God and the wisdom of avoiding judgment, which we see in the practice of God glorifying good works. Firstly then, your brother before God. If you're going to offer gifts to the altar, gifts towards God and the altar, that is at the temple, at the place where God meets man, meets the Jewish man, you're going to go into a place where there is death all the time. Uh, we have such a nice cathedral building and some people mistakenly think it's a temple. It's not a temple. The temple is very different. If you went into the temple of Jerusalem, the one thing that would stand out in comparison to this building uh, apart from not having Gothic architecture and stained glass windows, the thing that would really stand out for you was the barbecue. Because constantly they were sacrificing animals in the temple. The stench of death was everywhere. Blood, guts, gore were all over the temple. That was the nature of the place. Animals were regularly killed. The temple was a place of death. It was a place where the judgment of God was manifested before you all the time. I think if someone bought an animal in here, we would complain, let alone if someone killed them, let alone if someone tried to do a barbecue. Just not on in times of a cathedral building. It's a very different thing than going to a church 
is going to the temple where God meets man, where sinful man meets the holy God and where the justice of God is delivered on the animals in place of the humans. If you're going to meet God, the holy and righteous God, who judges justly, punishing the guilty. And so you're going to bring your gifts to the altar that you may appease this angry God. Well, on the way, if you remember your brother has, has something against you, that you've wronged him, not that, he's wronged, not that he's wronged you, but you've wronged him, that you're at fault, then go fix it up first. Don't think that you can go and meet God and be, God will be pleased and satisfied with you if you've got something against your brother. If you've got something against your brother, sorry, if, you're God, if your brother's got something against you, God has got something against you. You cannot raise your hand against your brother without at the same time raising your hand against God for your brother is made in the image of God. You cannot hate your brother without hating God. For as God said, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God has made man in his image. You attack man, you're attacking God. The crime of murder is that it is anti-God. Just as true religion is to be pro-human, the book of James says, true religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. People think that religion has to do with my connection with God, nothing to do with anybody else. But no, God has created us, not just me, us. And the way in which I have true religion is seen in my relationship with other people. As God touches me with his love, I overflow in love of other people. If I hate other people, it's because I haven't got the love of God within my heart. That's symptomatic of the profound disease that I have. And so I cannot then think, well, I'll, I'll go and get things right with God while I still go and hate my neighbour. Because my neighbour was made in the image of God. And my responsibility is to love my neighbour and to care for my neighbour. God doesn't want our sacrifices. He doesn't want our offerings. He wants our real repentance and our restitution. He wants us to live in love with one another. That's why he said, you shall not kill. Not meaning only, you shall not take a knife, spear, sword, arrow, gun to your neighbour but you shall not live in hostility towards your neighbour. You shall not despise your neighbour. You shall love your neighbour. And so if you're going to be reconciled to God, make sure that you're reconciled to your brother first before you think of approaching God, the judge of all the world, whose requirements are that you are to love your neighbour. Secondly, then, in verses 25 to 26, comes the wisdom of avoiding judgment by settling out of court. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to the court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. I mean, once you get to court, there may be no way back but to face the full consequences of the law. 
And this wisdom should particularly drive those who are about to face God to settle accounts with him. Because the kingdom of heaven is near. The disciples need to repent, to turn back to God, and that involves fixing up their relationships with other humans that they may have wronged, especially if they're now going to declare this message to others. Here is the practice of God glorifying good works. Return to the hurt parties of our lives and say sorry wherever possible. Make restitution for our faults and for our failings. So often, people will be happily accept the idea that God may forgive me and therefore to be able to kind of say the slate behind me is wiped clean. But do not go back and make restitution with the humans that we've hurt in the past. Do not go back and say sorry. Do not go back and try and fix it. God's forgiven me. I don't have to worry about that anymore. If God has truly forgiven me, I will seek to go and put things right. Restitution is the sign and symbol that I have really accepted forgiveness. I'm not forgiven because I make restitution, but if I am forgiven, I will make restitution. Of course, sometimes people won't accept our apologies. Sometimes they're still too hurt and angry with us to ever allow us to find forgiveness. Sometimes you're unable to contact the people. Sometimes they've died. And there's no way you can fix up the mess that you made years ago. Some of the things, of course, we just can't remember our misdeeds. You've got a track record like me. There are so many. There's no way I could make restitution for all the lies I've told, all the greeds, all that. I mean, that's just not going to be possible. However, we mustn't think that we can approach God and be in right relationship with God while avoiding man's accusations against us when we're in the wrong. Notice how the beloved Apostle Paul spoke in terms of this. Come with me to Romans chapter 12. It's page 1142, 1142 in our pew Bible here, 1142, Romans 12. Notice how he talks of Christian living here. Romans 12, and I'm reading from verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what it means when the commandment says, you shall not murder. That's what it means. It means Romans 12. It means living in harmony and forgiveness and pardon. It's seeking reconciliation. It's overcoming evil with good. And when you are living like this, it's unnatural. 
It's not like anybody else lives. The society doesn't operate like that. People keep very short straws on who's done what to who, who's offended me, when have they offended me. The whole office party politics is all caught up in acrimony and in hating people and in trampling over other people. This is radically different way of living. And if you are like this, it's because of the touch of God. You have taken hold of the law of God. It's written on your heart and you are seeking to amplify, maximize its implications in your life. Here are the good works that bring glory to your Father in heaven. For it's an unnatural way to live. Not how the world, it goes way beyond their idea of morality and legalism. It goes beyond what you have to do by just demands. It treats humans as God treats humans. And aren't you glad he treats you this way? If you want to live forgiven, you must forgive. You can't have the forgiveness of God and refuse to extend forgiveness to others. That is an absurdity. And yet vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He will repay, for there will be a day of judgment. There is a day of reckoning. Which brings us back to that Sermon on the Mount passage and the dreadful mention of the hell of fire. So let's just take a moment or two on that. For Jesus is the one and only hellfire preacher of the Bible. The word hell is only used 12 times in the New Testament and not at all in the Old Testament. Uh, Once it's used in the epistle of James, otherwise it's only ever on the lips of Jesus. He is the only person who preaches hell in the Bible. That's extraordinary, isn't it? You know, the angry God of the Old Testament and the gentle Jesus, loving, meek and mild. It's the gentle Jesus who preaches hell, who uses the word. And when people say, I just like the Sermon on the Mount, manifest they haven't read it. Because this is the most hellfire part of the Bible. It's a dreadful thing. And Matthew chapter 5 verse 22 is the very first reference to hell in the Bible. Jesus uses this awful image of hell, which was the municipal garbage dump just outside Jerusalem, a place called Gehenna. King Josiah had made it into a garbage dump to defile its former usage as the place for child sacrifice being offered up to the god Molech. And so it became the place where garbage was continually burnt. It was infested with rats and it stank and it had vermin who lived off the scraps of human existence. And so where criminals who were executed by the courts of the land were dumped so that the stench of their rotting corpses could see further punishment by the ignominy of their exposure to the flames and to the vermin. And there's something awful in the image, isn't it? That my body is going to be thrown on a garbage dump and my flesh is going to be eaten by the birds, the crows, the vultures and the rats. It's it's an image of punishment beyond death that is being used. It's an awful image of a continuing punishment beyond the grave. Well, there is no grave. It's an image that is meant to create in us revulsion and horror. 
where the inhumanity of child sacrifices was replaced with a punishment of criminals for whom death was not enough. Gehenna was a dreadful word. But behind this awful image of hell is the awful reality of hell. The exact contours of this reality we don't know and we shouldn't want to know and may we never find out. Don't be deceived. Just because Jesus uses figurative language to describe the reality, it doesn't mean that the reality is figurative also. Beyond the courts of this land, beyond the judgments of this world, there is the awful judgment of God. The God who is perfectly just and therefore fiercely angry. The God against whom we sin whenever we mistreat our neighbour our neighbour who was made in God's image. The God who can not only kill the body, but as Jesus says, also destroy both body and soul in hell. Death is not the end. As God himself declared, it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. And my friends, it's so right as well. I know we have to move to extreme cases to grasp it because we ourselves are so sinful. But one of the great problems of, of, of the execution of the execution of justice in this world is that sometimes the execution of justice in this world is not enough. That several of the men caught in the Nuremberg trials suicided before they could be executed and the world felt robbed and cheated because we didn't punish them because they still were in control even of their death as the world felt robbed and cheated that never really caught Adolf Hitler or as Australians have expressed about the Bali bombers that death is not good enough Prison is not good enough. Death is not good enough. It's when we have the extremes that we can see the reality of the need for punishment. But that's because we're sinful. God is holy and righteous. He sees the need for our punishment. Because hatred is murder. And we all participate in that. So are you in danger of hell? Well, if we hate our brother, if we're angry with him, if we despise him, if we think of him as a fool, if he genuinely has something against us that we will not apologise for, if we have wronged him and made no attempt to fix it, if we've cheated him and defrauded him, if we've abused him or used him, if we hate our brother, it's not just an emotion, but an action. But it's not just an action, it's an attitude of your heart. If that is your relationship with your brother, then yes, you are in danger of hell. The courts of the land may never catch us because our hatred may be limited to the secrets of our own heart and our own attitudes and minds and motives. But the court of heaven is open. And we will not avoid that court 
or avoid that judge who sees and knows all, including the secrets of our hearts. So if you are in danger of hell, you better take action. The action of prayer and restitution. Let me show you the prayer. It's on the back of the outline again. Haven't prayed this for a few weeks, we'll pray it again today. But remember, if this prayer is your prayer, it doesn't stop at this point. It's got to do with living differently as a result of this prayer. For the prayer that's in the box there acknowledges to God that I'm guilty and I need forgiveness. Thanks God for sending his son to die that we be forgiven and rise to give us new life. Praise that we will be forgiven, but also praise that we will be changed to live with Jesus as ruler. Which may mean tonight, this afternoon, ringing somebody up and saying, I'm sorry for what I've done. Can I repay? Let's pray. I'll pray out loud. You might like to join me in the quietness of your own heart to God. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you and I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen.